This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. On this March 2nd, we welcome you to Real Talk. Thanks for hanging out with us. It's Jesperson with... John Hicks. Yes. On this Thursday, coming up in about a half an hour, Johan Hari is going to join us, the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. We're going to be asking difficult questions that make <laughs> us feel uncomfortable. Are you addicted to your phone? I got the email. The this... question. What do you think? Yeah, I got the email today. I thought this was like a direct email to me. <laughs> I was just asking you. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah me too. A hundred percent. No bones about it. I'm not going to lie. Uh, we're going to bring our, our, our real talk to the table today. Uh, Johan's actually going to be on his way uh, to our neck of the woods, to Edmonton in uh, the next couple of weeks. He's going to be delivering the keynote at a mental health fundraiser. And uh, he's, uh, of course, captured the attention of people around the world. His audience in the tens of millions, his TED Talks have been viewed alone uh, uh, almost 100 million times, he challenges people on their thoughts around addiction. And he talks uh, with great emphasis about his uh, conviction that, uh, I mean, we're on the road to ruin, he argues, but it's not too late. And uh, for, for the benefit of our kids, for the benefit of society, for the benefit of ourselves, he's sounding the alarm with his new book, the international bestseller, Stolen Focus. We're going to get to that coming up a little late, later on in the show. Right now, though, we lead off with talk of federal policy. Politics in Canada, a new poll out just yesterday uh, from the Angus Reid Institute finds that more than 50% of Canadians, 53%, in fact, believe the Liberal government has not been strong enough in responding to allegations of Chinese interference in Canadian democracy. A majority of Canadians believe that China did attempt to interfere in recent federal elections and they want to see stronger measures to prevent foreign meddling. They're adding to the growing calls for Ottawa to take action. Our guest leading off this morning has experience in this wheelhouse. He's a former diplomat. He's a former politician, cabinet minister with the Conservative Party of Canada, serving as Canada's Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. He spent 18 years in the Canadian Foreign Service as well. Chris Alexander returning to the show. It's nice to see your face again. And, and thank you for making time for us this morning. How you been holding up? Really well, thank you, Ryan. Great, thanks for having me. Yeah, of um, course. Great to be back with you. And and uh, sounds like the show is going from strength to strength. So keep up the great work. Are you are you addicted to your phone? Can can we get personal for a second? Do you do you evaluate? Do you evaluate? <laughs> yeah, your tech I mean, habits? I try not to be. I like I I console myself with the thought that my kids are more addicted, so I'm not that bad. <laughs> but it's actually pretty bad. Yeah, in the on the on the parenting front, is was screen time a big thing for you? Were you just trying to monitor it as best you can and limit screen yeah, time? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be the 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 uh, easygoing dad that doesn't um, obsess over it too much, and you know, hoping that they'll do the right thing. But of course, sometimes you got to lay down the law. You know, yeah. at meal times, screens have got to go away. The two screen principle is not a good one ever. Uh, and uh, on weekends and in evenings, you know, homework and 
doing stuff with your friends and being outdoors, being with your families has to come first, but it's, it's really hard to regulate. My goodness. How do you do it? Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know how well I do it to be honest, but I, you know, one of the things is we have these notifications on it where on my iPhone, it'll let me know about my screen time. And I think it usually pops up on Sunday mornings. There'll be a notification and it lets me know if my screen time has been up or down uh, from the week prior. And I always try to pat myself on the back. If it says, you know, your screen time was down last week, uh, but then it will say it was down to like five hours a day. And I'm like, oh, yeah, man, I know it's brutal. And, like, what did we do with those five hours before we had these screens? You know, we did a lot of a lot of different stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's it, the, the jury is still out on all of this. And I hope habits keep changing because they're not great right now. Uh, I mean, my my wife wields the parental controls, which, um, you know, is bring down the hammer when yeah. necessary. But I, I don't know what the what the right solution is. We don't want kids to be digitally illiterate, right? The world is going to be yes. digital, but you also don't want them to be addicted to the wrong stuff and go down these rabbit holes that are that are that are driving a lot of people into some weird uh, views of the world. And, and I'm, I know that's, that's partly what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. I mean, you're bang on and I'm glad you take it there. There's, there's research that shows, but I think I'll, I'll probably equally as, as powerful or compelling is the anecdotal evidence that people say, if you, if you, if you head on to YouTube, even if you're not signed into your account, so you'd think you may be less susceptible to being, I don't know, pigeonholed with regards to where your perspective is at or, or, or what have you. you, you can find yourself being, being almost funneled into different types of channels or content that could, that could ultimately be the, the type of content that might radicalize somebody or that might twist somebody's perspectives on the world. Uh, I'm glad you talked about digital literacy or digital illiteracy. You know, we have that conversation in raising our little guy as well, seven years old. He's right, he's right in that prime time where kids start to yeah. want to watch YouTube all the time or they want to have, you know, the apps that they go to. And we want to make sure that he's savvy and that he understands the world around him, that he has access to learning tools and, and all that kind of thing. I know this is going to resonate with a lot of people that probably feel the same way. But at the same time, I've always been almost discouraged or can I can I sound judgy and say like unimpressed when I've seen people of all ages just with their heads buried in their tablets or their phones all the time. And I count myself among those people that that could be susceptible to that. Me, too. Uh, And and sometimes, you know, really for the wrong reasons, there was a time I would say a year or two ago when Twitter, which is, you know, where I spend probably more time on my phone than in any other single place was getting better. I thought like the, 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 the extreme voices were being marginalized. Um, the sensible voices were coming more to the fore. It, it was a less um, toxic environment. Uh, but then uh, I have to say the last four months with the new ownership, it's gone in the wrong direction and bringing a lot of these voices back, you know, that, that can't appear on your show and can't appear on Canadian media because in our country, it's considered hate speech, mm. a lot of this stuff. Uh, and a lot of it is state sponsored and so forth, but it's back on Twitter. It's m- making that a, a more toxic environment than ever. So why am I there? You know, I asked myself and why is it such a central forum for uh, democratic debate in all of our countries? You know, journalists, I don't know what the numbers are, but we all know they spend a lot of time on Twitter because Mm -hmm. you sort of can't afford to not be there. But it sometimes drags people in the wrong, um, in the wrong, but not sometimes, very often drags people in the wrong direction and twerks the debate in the wrong ways. And it gives people extremists of all stripes 
a way into our minds, you know, and if they're smart, they use that leverage um, to 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 affect us, even when we don't know that we are being affected by their actions and their their strategy. Our uh, our conversation here, our, our casual conversation is is inching toward the jumping off point of why we asked you to be here. <laughs> of course, that's uh, well, we want to talk about two things. I want to talk about the war in Ukraine, of course, as well. And you have plenty of experience in international diplomacy and international relations, foreign policy and the like. Uh, but when we talk about Chinese interference in elections, when you were in politics, I mean, it wasn't ages ago. It's coming up on 10 years ago, though. How much has changed with regards to what you think is on the radar or, or cause for concern when it comes to foreign interference or meddling? Uh, we talk about the, the bedrock of democracy. We're talking about the, 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 the essentially the, the, the general population's confidence in our elections or in the electoral process. Was this something that was that was on the table, that was on the radar 10 years ago when you were still in politics? Yeah, I think we were starting to talk about it. Um, remember, if, if you look at those um, measures, you know, some by Washington-based think tanks, some done in Europe, um, so, some academics in Canada are involved in this, of, of the, the health of democracy, where, you know, which countries are democracies, which ones are advancing in terms of the reliability of their institutions, free speech and so forth, and which are slipping backwards. There's a general consensus that um, the number of democracies increased more or less in a straight line from the 70s through the 80s, 90s, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, especially into this century. But then it, we went over uh, a peak and, and things started to decline you know, around the time of the financial crisis. Some say 2006, 2007, 2008. That coincides with the arrival of social media as a big force in our lives and a disruptive force for media, as as you all know. Um, and, and I think that was the main new tool that was given to the states abroad that wanted to disrupt our democracies. They didn't use it actively at first. They didn't know how to use it. But I think the Arab Spring in 2011 was a wake up call to them when those tools were used against several dictatorships and threatened to bring change to Russia and China, those regimes woke up and said, my God, we better do something about this. We better turn the tables. We better use it um, to our advantage, which meant using it to disrupt democracy. So sometime around 10 years ago, 12 years ago, things got more serious. But we didn't really notice this on a large scale until we saw the Brexit, Trump and other dramatic elections where social media with foreign influence behind it played a big role. That's when people really started to wake up. And of course, that was after we were out of office, which was 2015. Yeah, uh, there's polling from ARI out. It's, it's about a year old now. It was out last February that, that showed, you know, about a third of voters, a little bit more than a third. Thirty four percent of voters believe that free and fair elections were getting weaker in Canada. Uh, there were about 23 percent that believed that the opposite was true. So in other words, those that believed that they were getting weaker out polled or outrepresented those that believed that that was not the case. Then there's this poll released just yesterday that I talked about, the Angus Reid poll, that showed that about 25% of Canadians, including more than 40% of conservative voters, believe that the 2021 election was stolen uh, because of China's interference. Uh, just under half of respondents disagreed with that. Kind of part of the whole point of this is just the seeds of doubt, right? Yeah. I mean, in a way, that's mission accomplished already. Yeah. And and how could it not be the case in Canada um, 
that those doubts would be strengthening because we've seen the US and UK, you know, the two democracies that we probably follow most closely, uh, France and Germany are affected in this way as well, move from being full democracies to being uh, less than full democracies by most of these measures. And that's because there's one party or another party in those countries that has sought to use undemocratic means to hang on to power or to uh, fight elections, win advantage in elections, a and because there has been foreign influence in bo over both political systems that hasn't been fully um, eliminated from the political process in the US and UK. In Canada, it's a bit different. We don't have uh, the Murdoch media here. I think there's a big part of this that has come in through that door. I mean, their effort to talk about a stolen election uh, after January 6th uh, really contaminated political debate in the US, in my view. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think anyone serious in Canada, a serious analyst, is saying that any of our elections uh, in 21, 19, 15, was stolen, that the result was turned by this foreign intervention. But if if even one MP uh, succeeded and is was sitting in Ottawa because of foreign intervention instead of someone else, that's a serious result. That's a serious uh, distortion of democracy. And it lessens, as you say, the confidence we all have in the overall system. Uh, if, if one or two MPs uh, are there because of foreign intervention, what was the impact of foreign interference more generally? What was the impact on social media, which is very hard to measure? Uh, the, the, these things haven't been looked into deeply in Canada, and that's why there is legitimately, I think, talk of an inquiry, talk of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, an effort to get to the bottom of this. The, the, the Prime Minister is being heavily criticized this week for, at this point anyway, refusing to to call for a public inquiry into this when you go along partisan lines obviously the criticism gets more strong or more quiet depending on who you're talking about obviously uh more than nine out of ten conservatives polled believe that ottawa is afraid to stand up to china on this but across party lines if you if you go as non-partisan as possible almost 70 percent of people polled and i'm talking a lot about polling but it's a great way to get a sense of where the electorate is at on this where canadians are at on this about 70 percent of those polled say they believe that canada is afraid to stand up to china on this now obviously you were a conservative cabinet minister everybody knows what flag you've flown but what do you think the prime minister needs to do on this well uh he needs to address it it, it, it is the most serious cross-party concern that I have ever seen in my experience of Canadian politics and probably that we've had in our history uh, about foreign interference uh, distorting things. And, and I think it's important, uh, you know, I, Trudeau's um, ties to China, his father's ties to China. Uh, he was there in 1960, the father, you know, when, when the Great Leap Forward was happening, he apologized for Mao, you know, Justin Trudeau grew up with that kind of stuff around the dinner table. And, and it, it wasn't surprising to any of us when he started to say, uh, as he became liberal leader, that he admired China, that there was a lot um, uh, to be um, to be uh, to compliment China for. I mean, I think that was his uh, it was his orientation as he went into the job. What What's most what, what's worrying is that as prime minister over so many years, 
he's clearly gotten advice from his top advisors, from CSIS, from other professional parts of the government, that China is taking advantage of his uh, predisposition, of his bias in their favor. And that that's not, you know, the, the, the things they're doing are not in Canada's national interest. It's not just electoral interference. It's our attitude towards Huawei. It's our attitude towards Chinese uh, investment in Canada. It's our, 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 our slow uh, move to push back the, 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 the forms of influence, especially on high tech uh, fronts, research and universities and so forth, the way our allies have been doing from Australia to the United States, the UK to Europe. We, we've been really the last to do these things. And voices in the government have been urging Trudeau and his ministers to do more. They have failed to do so. And now, you know, we, we've seen that drip of criticism over seven years. But now we have a really a crisis because it turns out that the most important agency monitoring these things in the government's CSIS uh, uh, was worried that individuals were being elected in Canada because they suited China's agenda, because they were uh, brought to the front of the line by Chinese officials working in Canada. Uh, and the prime minister was made aware of that and did nothing. I mean, that is truly scandalous. Uh, you know, if, if, if an official failed to act on that kind of information, uh, they would be uh, in legal jeopardy, I would say. Uh, the prime minister is rightly being criticized on this. And to address it, he needs to do a lot more than give, you know, ask the Trudeau Foundation to give back a little money. He needs to show that he is acting in Canada's national interest. And he hasn't done that yet. John Iveson with a uh, column on this in the National Post argues if the prime minister wants to repair public trust in our democracy, reduce polarization, restore public confidence in our leaders, he should set in motion some form of impartial inquiry uh, to answer these questions. Bigger picture, when you're talking about the Canadian public, where people are, you mentioned Huawei as an example. I mean, there's talk about banning Huawei from Canada's 5G networks and the like. I just found out over the past couple of days, Alberta government employees have recently been instructed to remove TikTok from their phones. Uh, that's like a sweeping mandate. It's pretty interesting. And I would imagine we'll probably see more of those types of mandates as, as time goes on. Do you see public opinions? Like, we're actually very curious on this show as part of our Alberta budget coverage yesterday. We want to know, like, what the average person thinks. What does this mean on the street? As politicians, it would be your equivalent of, of door knocking and getting the sense of where yeah. people are at at the doors. Does a story like this resonate with the general public? And if so, what sort of behavior changes might it prompt, do you think? Yes, I think it does. I mean, I think people of our kids' age are addicted to TikTok because it's technologically fabulous and addictive. Um, they don't always associate it with China. People who are of voting age and, and older generations, I think, are very alive to these issues. I mean, let's be honest, Ryan. China had quite a good uh, reputation in Canada for a country that is governed by a dictatorship uh, of the Communist Char uh, Party of China. Um, they, when Trudeau came into office, there was still uh, there were still a lot of Canadians, ordinary people, who were willing to give China the benefit of the doubt. Then the two Michaels happened. Then uh, the warrior. Um, uh, diplomacy happened, wolf warrior diplomacy. Then um, there started to be really 
uh, fiery talk about taking back Taiwan and she consolidating his power. The levels of support approval for China and Canada have plummeted, you know, from well over 50%, 60%, I think it was at some point, to uh, teens or below 10. And so I think ordinary Canadians understand that it's a surveillance state that is using technology to control its own population and when there's TikTok and Huawei involved to have influence around the world. Uh, I think they understand that when they invest in rare earths in Canada or in high technology, it isn't just uh, a commercial transaction. That there is an agenda behind this that isn't that 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 is that is hostile and malign to some extent, uh, and so I think Canadians are are, are uh, want to see more from their government to make sure that this agenda is not hurting us, uh, and especially after this week of revelations about how it has hurt our politics, how it is uh, lowering the the integrity of our elections, affecting the integrity of our elections. People want to see action. They're a bit impatient. I don't think they see, uh, they probably have more trust in the Conservatives to do something on this. I don't think they see any leader at the moment giving them an agenda that is credible on this. We've got some some people saying, you know, plain power, for example, says don't be so quick to judge the Prime Minister Trudeau. This is the entire political system, including all parties. Galaxy Hunter says, you know, Chris is spinning a tall tale. Let's talk about Stephen Harper selling off China trade deals with China. Has this has, has Canada's relationship? I mean, if we're being fair here and analyzing this been problematic for years, has there been a trend developing here across party lines? Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue um that our failure to do enough uh, predates the Trudeau era, for sure. Uh, but let's give credit where it's due. Uh, Prime Minister Harper um, banned Chinese investment by state-owned Chinese firms in uh, our oil sector, for example. That was the big move at the time. And it probably kept uh, a big part of our industry out of the hands of the Chinese state at a time when they were looking to expand their asset base, particularly in that field. Um, we were quite uh, aggressive in banning Chinese companies from investing in Canada when we knew uh, that there was a an espionage or an intellectual property theft agenda behind it. Uh, I remember one particular case involving a company that wanted to set up right next to the Space Centre in Quebec. Uh, and that was prohibited on advice from uh, the Canadian agencies responsible because it was a security threat. That kind of action was not taken by Trudeau. Uh, and I think anyone who claims that Harper and Trudeau are the same on China just isn't reading the facts. Trudeau has been the most permissive, the most forgiving partner for China, uh, certainly in the G7 over all his time in office and probably that Canada has ever had. Uh, and he's been behind the times with regard to what the U.S. is doing. They have a congressional bipartisan committee now in Congress that is pushing the Biden administration to do more, the Biden administration that's leading the world on these issues, and that's a democratic administration. Europe is pushing back on Chinese companies and Chinese blackmail uh, and Chinese fueling of political corruption much more aggressively than Canada, as is the U.K. Uh, we're behind and and uh, I, I think that's an objective, nonpartisan conclusion that we all should be drawing. 
Uh, on your uh, Twitter just yesterday, you point out that Canada among allies is, as you describe it, an embarrassing 17th uh, by percentage of military budget given to Ukraine. You say how far we have fallen. The Estonians with almost half of their military budget, 44.5% uh, given to Ukraine. Latvia, almost 40%. Lithuania, a quarter of it. Poland, 20%. The Czechs. 15 percent and and so it goes canada just under six percent 5.7 percent that that war in ukraine russia's war in ukraine hit that one year mark just a few days ago and prompted a lot of people including us to to take pause and to think about it i mean you you obviously have a lot of experience in in the foreign service as a diplomat um you were uh, obviously involved as a diplomat to afghanistan you've you've been uh, well uh, aware of of some of the dynamics of canada's involvement in uh conflict zones etc what what were you thinking about on the on the one year anniversary of that russian aggression in ukraine well first how um how frustrating it is that uh we are still talking about what it will take for ukraine to regain control over all its territory not just one year after this full-scale invasion but going on nine years after the uh first invasion which was in early 2014 remember right after the sochi olympics where uh, Canadians had done so well and people were heaping praise on uh, Putin as the host. Right as those games ended, these little green men went into Crimea. That was nine years ago, Brian. And at that time, Canada was quick to respond. Uh, We had a prime minister that called out Putin that was the first to say, you know, Russia needs to get out of Ukraine. That led the charge on sanctions uh, behind closed doors in the G7, got Russia kicked out of the G8, as it then was, uh, and then led on sanctions. We now know that Angela Merkel was not really a leader on these things. Stephen Harper was the leader. Uh, And then, and this doesn't get enough attention, we were the first country after that first invasion to set up a training program by our Canadian Armed Forces for the Ukrainian army in Ukraine. It was only after we did that that the U.S. started training the Ukrainian army and then the British after us. Fast forward to last year's invasion, which is much worse, partly because we've neglected this issue and we haven't given Ukraine uh, the tools to defend themselves and to fight back against Russia early enough. Uh, and Canada has been a laggard, as that uh, infographic shows. We have a small defense budget. We're using a very small part of it uh for ukraine's benefit whereas uh, arguably back after 2014 we were the main military partner uh and and it's really bad when you do the comparison with biden you know they're only spending a slightly higher percentage of their budget but their budget is much bigger uh our spending on military support for ukraine is something like three percent of what the u.s is doing usually we uh on any international nato or other security priority, we spend 10% on Ukraine, where we have this intimate relationship, this strategic bond, we should be doing 20%, 25%, in my view, uh, we're, we're, we're missing in action. And uh, I think that's embarrassing, because Canada's leadership on an issue like Ukraine, as we saw in 2014-15, can make a difference, it can get others to, uh, to, to, to do more. Uh, you know, the, the, the frontline states are doing a lot, as you mentioned, Estonia, Poland, Lithuania, and so forth. But 
the middle European countries and even the UK and the US still aren't doing everything they should be doing. And Canada's um, complacency and, and, and lackluster performance makes it easier for the for, for, for others to, to, to do less. And it, it postpones Ukraine's victory, which is what we all want to see. Chris Alexander is uh, Canada's former Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. He was Canada's first resident ambassador to Afghanistan, part of 18 years in the Canadian Foreign Service. It's always good to have you on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be with you. All the best. Thanks for doing it. Yeah, we'll chat again soon. A lot of talk in the live chat about people talking about even just consumers' relationships with China. It's kind Mm -hmm. of a funny way to put it, a relationship with China, but an affinity for Chinese-made products. And for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. it just comes down to availability and cost. I was thinking that as he's saying it, like all this talk and we're just we're inexplicably like connected to them forever because everything. Yeah. You know, you can go in your home and point at everything that's made in China. But everyone's talking about TikTok right now because obviously Canada and are are putting bigger emphasis on telling people like. I was hearing this morning, like government officials, you can't use TikTok on your phone. They anymore. want it off their phone. Yeah, it's yeah. banned now, as of like this week. So, like, we're on TikTok. Real Talk RJ is on TikTok. Like, follow us. Do subscribe, I think? Like. Do I think it's a big threat for us? I don't know. But like, here's what I know: Facebook, Instagram, all these these are like American companies where all the information is stored on American servers for yeah. the most part, right? Yeah. Whereas TikTok in China, like, they say they're not using our information or giving it to the government but then we've seen people who have done reports and shown that data is being fed directly from tiktok and the people who work there and executives yeah right to the chinese government so i mean the question is also do people actually care like does the, well, the average th- person think that whether or not they're being surveilled does like does does bob in hamilton no. ontario believe that and that actually matters. And I don't think I care either. But then who knows? I think the big concern is, is kids, right? Because TikTok, yeah. you've got a lot of 13 and unders on there all day long. So. The jumping off point of the conversation is like, where is the public at with regards to confidence in our democracy? Mm-hmm. With regards to confidence in the outcome of the elections? Interesting to see the polling around who believes that elections are stolen. I don't, I don't think that the average Canadian truly, honestly believes that an election was stolen. Mm-hmm. You're more inclined to want to believe something like that, maybe if your candidate didn't win or if your party didn't win. But it is a big issue if the general population has a waning confidence in the validity of the democratic outcome. A hundred percent. Right. I mean, that's a, that, that is a real big deal. And if you believe Russia meddled in the American election, and if you believe Russia and China are kind of working together behind the scenes in some sort of fashion, then you can see how all this ties together and they can, you know, see what we're looking at and how we're gauging the election and then what they need to do on social media to sway us one way or the other. And that's where it gets really dangerous because a lot of people think, oh, that doesn't matter. And it matters so much nowadays. Like, yeah. look, look at Twitter every day. You can go on there and, and your opinion can be swayed one way or the other from like one tweet. Right. Sure. So. I was talking to somebody just yesterday about the the for you feed and maybe getting a little bit into the weeds here. But like if you're on Twitter, you may have noticed I didn't notice for a while. On the timeline, like when you're scrolling on your timeline, there's 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 basically two streams now. There's two mm-hmm. threads. I mean, I can even show my screen right now, John. So you look at this That's and the, and, and you, the yeah. default here. So this is this is Real Talk's Twitter account, but but the for you here, this is this is not accounts that we follow. This is what Twitter is curating 
for us, maybe mm-hmm. based on our likes or based on what we check out or mm-hmm. what have you. Uh, and then you click across to the following thread, and then these are the accounts that we're actually following. Well, mm-hmm. for you, I don't remember anybody asking for that. Yeah, I know. And I looked at mine the other day, and it was like 15 minutes. It's all this stuff I don't want, but that I'm looking at because of the show, like he was talking about. Sure. Journalists, people in the media, we look at Twitter all day. It is you don't want to call it a credible news source, but it is for a lot of people. It's and, a platform where a lot is shared, that's for sure. But if you're clicking on a lot of misinformation, even if you're just researching it to look at it and discredit it, then it shows up in your feed more. It's like the opposite of what you want. This is this is perfectly tying into what we're going to be talking to Johan Hari about in just a second. Uh, the author of Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. This is a phenomenal book. Uh, he'll be joining us from London uh, coming up in just a couple of seconds. These conversations happen because of the support of sponsors like our good friends at Kubi Energy. If you check out kubienergy.ca, there's some great resources there. Frequently asked questions, their blog post, which is great information on on tapping into some of the federal programs. For example, the Canada Greener Homes Grant that are making solar more accessible, more affordable, more of an option right now than it may have been for you in past. If you're looking for long-term energy savings, you're looking for, uh, obviously, environmental benefits. That goes without saying. What about increasing the supply of renewable energy to your community? What about increasing the value of your personal property? Solar will accomplish all of these things. And of course, getting a step in the right direction is easy. You just go to the website, request a free quote at kubienergy.ca. Don't forget, they present positive reflections every Monday or the first show of every week right here on Real Talk. Our friends at California Closets want you to know that you know you don't have to be wallowing you don't have to have all your stuff lost and piled up and getting wrinkled and you can't find your favorite shirt and you can't find and where's where's that tie clip where is the pair of socks hey listen getting organized getting everything into sort of a a well-structured setup aesthetically pleasing is simple it's what california closets does custom closets and storage solutions for the entire home and that includes your garage Yeah, that's right. The oft-ignored part of the property, your garage can be, of course, a gathering place. It can be a place that you're proud to show off. You want to talk about increasing the value of your home. California Closets knows all about that. Your journey with them can start with a free design consultation today. Learn more about their touchless service at californiaclosets.ca. They were talking about building and construction. This entire studio was built out by the team at Complete Care Restoration. We're proud to recommend them with two thumbs up. If you find yourself in a nightmare scenario, I'm talking fire damage, flood damage, smoke damage, maybe you need to get rid of mold or asbestos, heaven forbid, your first call needs to be to Complete Care Restoration. Chances are, you know, your insurance policy, most of them, give you the choice who you'd like to do the work we recommend that you get in touch with complete care restoration kelly and his team there unbelievable to work with and they don't leave until you're completely satisfied you can find them online at completecarerestoration.ca you feeling the hunger today you feeling like you want to sink your teeth into the best chicken strips in the game make sure you stop at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park They're offering the four-piece crispy chicken strips and fry rings basket 
We're talking crispy fries, onion rings, delicious ranch dipping sauce. You no longer have to choose between your favorite DQ menu items. Satisfy all your cravings with the limited time offering chicken strips in the fry rings basket of the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road. And scene. <laughs> Shout out to the Real Talk Studio Band. Uh, Johan Hari coming up in just a moment. Wanted to take a second to read this email. And uh, this is in response to a, to a tough conversation uh, that we had on Friday uh, with our dear friend, Sapria Devetti. Uh, you know, if you've been listening to the show for quite some time, that we've, we've had a tradition. We gather every Friday, and, and Sapria kind of cuts through the noise of the stories making news across the country. Of course, we've been uh, producing and, and proudly a part of the Seriously podcast as well for uh, the last six months or so. That's been out on Wednesdays. Well, we're, we're taking a break from both commitments, and Sapria told us why on Friday. It's a, a horribly uh, difficult situation. Her husband diagnosed recently with stage four lung cancer. And their entire family is diverting their uh, emotional resources and their, their strength and, of course, uh, everything that they need to commit to this fight. Uh, that's exactly where they need to be right now. And they have our full support. Uh, Supri was very candid on Friday and telling us about their family's story. You can check it out, of course, on our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcasts. But um, her comments uh, about an interaction with a thoracic surgeon prompted a response from another surgeon in Canada. You know, we're, we're never, uh, honestly, we never take this for granted that this audience is comprised of, of people uh, in many uh, circumstances, uh, people who have uh, understanding and experience in the areas that we're talking about, people who understand uh, exactly what goes into a story or what maybe is a contributing factor to a story like Sapria shared on Friday. And so I wanted to read this from Martin. Uh, not their real name. Uh, they've asked that we protect their anonymity for obvious reasons, and we're happy to do so. Uh, Martin writes, uh, Ryan and Sapria, uh, just moments ago, I listened with great sadness at the news of Sapria's husband's recently diagnosed stage four cancer. As a father in a young family, my heart hurt hearing Sapria's voice and the worry for what is to come. I'm not religious. But my wishes and prayers and thoughts go to Sapria and her family during this difficult and frightening time. I wanted to write, says Martin, about one point in particular, specifically the experience that Sapria conveyed about her family's experience with the thoracic surgeon. For context, I am a thoracic surgeon, and I know personally every thoracic surgeon in the GTA around Toronto. It's a very small community. For what it's worth... I wanted to commend Sapria for her bravery and her insistence on pushing the surgeon for clarity regarding her husband's diagnosis and stage. Let me jump in here for a second. If you didn't hear the interview, Sapria told us something in particular, a shocking line now, when they were going through PET scan results, the findings that demonstrated or that proved, as a matter of fact, that reiterated the fact that surgery is not going to be an option here. It was a difficult uh, reality, these findings, and Sapria talked about that. The surgeon, eager to leave the conversation, eager to extricate himself from the conversation, said to Sapria, I understand that you're the worried wife right now. I understand that you're worried about your husband, but I have 20 cancer patients to worry about. If you didn't hear the interview, huh. it's unbelievable. I could see your body language when she said it. Yeah, and I, I, 
I'll let you finish the email, but I think it was just the worried wife comment is just kind of it, it was so dismissive yeah, and, just, and it prompted Martin to write this email. Anyone would be worried. Can you, well, I mean, <laughs> look at what you're talking about. I mean, this is literally a matter of life and death. Yeah. Right. And so Martin goes, I, I, I want to apologize on behalf of thoracic surgeons and physicians for how the doctor handled that said I was viscerally angered when I heard the cowardly, selfish conduct of the surgeon and then the shameless blaming of Sapria for daring to question him. As somebody who literally deals with cancer patients every day at my job, I can say without hesitation the surgeon's avoidance of the real implications of the PET scan findings were intentional and purely selfish. The avoidance had nothing to do with helping all of his other patients. Conveying imaging findings without communicating their greater implications in terms of stage and the unfortunate terminal nature of such a diagnosis is a careful doublespeak of giving information without really giving it. Telling a young family that their loved one has stage four disease and that unfortunately it will not be curable but it may still be very much treatable, takes courage. And more importantly, it takes time. That news is always followed by an emotional response and questions. It was this time that the surgeon was hoping to bypass, I suspect. Martin says, I can assure you that not all physicians and surgeons are as selfish and cowardly in these situations. In fact, I suspect it's the minority who are. The guilting and shaming of you that followed was disgusting and unacceptable. It's a lame surgeon who blames the patient. He's writing to Sapria, a lame surgeon who blames the patient or the family for their shortcomings. Uh, Martin says, I want to thank the show. And I think that you are entitled to a little physician bashing. Physicians are working hard and they sometimes have to do difficult work in poorly resourced situations. But those moments with the patient are the real work. And they are always the most important task at the time. The next patient will benefit from that same focus when their encounter begins. Martin says, I just had to send this in. I'm so sorry this happened. I wish, Sabria, you and your family all the strength and hope during this awful time. Martin signs off a Real Talk subscriber and thoracic surgeon. We sure appreciate that email. And it gave us a lot to think about. You can be in touch with the show anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's where you can find us. Our next guest is a New York Times bestselling author three times over. The executive producer of an Oscar-nominated movie in an eight-part TV series. He's written over the past decades for some of the world's leading newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, The Guardian, The Spectator, Politico. You may have seen him on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, on the podcast with Joe Rogan, on the BBC's Question Time. His TED Talks have been viewed nearly 100 million times. His new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. What a pleasure to welcome Johan Hari to the program. Thank you for making time for us. And uh, greetings oh. from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, all the way over to London. Oh, cheers, Ryan. It's lovely to be with you again. Yeah, I know a lot of people are oh. excited. Uh, uh, your upcoming visit uh, to Alberta's capital city, and we're going to be getting into the pages of, of your book, Stolen Focus. 
We're talking about addiction here, and, and, and I'm, I'm hoping to use some of this time to pick your brain on things like the opioid crisis. You've been fascinated with the human condition and, and our proclivity to become addicted, including to devices, to our phones. It was an experience circling around Graceland, it sounds like, that prompted you writing this book. How did this all get started? <laughs> yeah, I've got a godson, and when he turned nine, he developed this brief but very intense obsession with Elvis Presley, and it was super cute because he seemed to genuinely not know that impersonating Elvis had become a kind of cheesy cliche. So I think he was the last person in the history of the world to do an entirely sincere version of Jailhouse Rock. But um, when I used to tuck him into bed at night, he used to get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. Obviously, I skipped over the bit at the end where he died on the toilet. Right. And, and one night, I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived. And I mentioned that people go and visit it and his whole face lit up. And he said, Johan, will you take me to Graceland one day? And I was like, sure. The way you do with nine-year-olds knowing, you know, next week he'll want to go to Lapland or Legoland or whatever. And he said, no, do you really swear one day you will take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely promise. And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. Um, when he was 15, he dropped out of school. And by the time he was 19, he spent literally all his waking hours almost alternating between his iPad, his iPhone and his laptop. And his life was just this blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn. And it it felt like he was almost kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat. You know what I mean? Where nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa, just almost literally where I'm sitting now, just behind it. And all day I was trying to get a conversation going with him and I just couldn't. And he's a very intelligent and likable person. And to be totally honest with you, Ryan, I wasn't that much better. I was staring at my own devices and I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before. And I said to him, Hey, this is no way to live. Let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me totally blankly. He's like, what are you talking about? And I reminded him and I said, look, We've got to break this numbing routine. Let's go on a road trip all over the South. But I suddenly thought ahead. I said, you've got to promise me one thing, which is that if we go, you'll leave your phone in the hotel during the day because there's no point going if you're just going to stare at a screen the whole time. And he took a beat and he really thought about it. He said, you know what? I want to do this. And I think it was literally two, two weeks, three weeks later, we took off here from here in London to New Orleans where we went first. And a couple of weeks after that, we got to the gates of Graceland. And when you get to Graceland now, this is even, we were going there before COVID, there's no person to show you around. What happens is they they hand you an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, go left, go right. Every room you go in, there's an image of that, that room on the iPad in front of you. And it tells you a story about that room. So we start walking around Graceland and there's this kind of weird effect that I'm becoming aware of, which is that no one's actually looking at Graceland. Everyone's just kind of staring at the screen. And then every now and then people look away from the screen and I'm like, oh, but they look away from the screen to take out their phones, take a selfie, put their phone away, go back to looking at the screen. So I'm getting a little bit, a little bit tense. And we got to the jungle room that was Elvis's favorite room in Graceland. It's full of fake plants. And I'll never forget them. There was a Canadian couple, no disrespect to all Canadians listening. Uh, it was a Canadian couple next to us who were maybe in their early 50s. And the man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look, if you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I laughed out loud because I thought they were kidding. 
And I turned and watched them and they were just swiping back and forth. And I, I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's um, a kind of old fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head. Yeah. Because you realize we're in the jungle room. You don't have to look at it on the internet. It's, it's literally all around you. And they looked at me like I was insane and, and, and backed out the room. And I turned to my godson to laugh about it. And he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat. Because from the moment we landed, he just couldn't stop. He, he literally couldn't stop. And I went up to him. I did that thing that's never a good idea with teenagers. I tried to grab the phone out of his hand. And I said, look, I know you're afraid of missing out. But this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not present at the events of your own existence. You're not showing up at your own life. And he stormed off, understandably. And I walked around Memphis on my own that day. And I found him that night at the Heartbreak Hotel up the street where we were staying. And um, he was sitting, his feet were in this giant guitar shirt swing pool. And he was looking at Snapchat. And I went up to him and I apologized for getting so angry. And he said, um, I know something's really wrong. And I don't know what it is. And that's when I realized, oh, we came away to get away from this problem of distraction. But there was nowhere to escape to because it's everywhere. It's the air we breathe. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to figure out what's happening to our attention. Is it really getting worse? Um, and if it is, what's causing this? And that was really the journey that led me to write Stolen Focus. The, the book is that journey. So you you swear off tech basically as the story goes and you write about it in the book. People need to read the book. They need to check it out. But you swear off all tech basically for three months, right? You're in Massachusetts. You, you go, I, mean, I love you telling the story of like you're you're going into, what is it, Target or somewhere and you're, you're trying to find like basically the lousiest phone that you can. You don't <laughs> want access to your email. You don't need apps. You don't need it to be able to run the internet. And you start to participate in the exercise. I mean, just even anecdotally, I'll let people know in promoting your interview here, we go to tag you on Twitter. We can't write now because you're you're twitter you're signed out of twitter you're off twitter you're 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 on and off your social media platforms what was that three months like for you the the first few days must have been maybe a little bit twitchy you're probably you know by, by habit going to check your phone or whatever as you eased into week one week two week three what did you start learning about yourself you know, it's interesting because at the start of the book right i had felt that my own ability to focus was getting worse right each year that passed things that require deep focus that are really important to me, like reading books, having proper long conversations, even watching movies were getting harder and harder. And I could see this was happening to huge numbers of people around me, right? The the average office worker now focuses on any one task for less than one minute. And for every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. So I was thinking about this. And I kind of thought at the start of the book, wrongly, it turned out, I thought I knew what the problem was. I thought, well, the problem here is obvious. There's two things going on. Um, I'm weak. There's something wrong with me. I'm not strong enough to resist this stuff. And someone invented the smartphone and that screwed me over. So if the problem was me having a lack of willpower in the existence of the smartphone. It seemed to me the answer was obvious, which is use your willpower and separate yourself from the smartphone. So I went to a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod for three months where I had no smartphone and no laptop that could get onto the internet. And I did not look at the internet for three months. And there were lots of ups and downs in those three months. Um, but the thing that most amazed me was how much my attention came back. Right. Because the other thing I thought is, you know, I was nearly 40. I thought maybe my attention is getting worse because I'm getting older. My attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I was stunned. 
But then we got to the end of the three months and I thought, well, this has been this weird little uh, break from reality. But I never want to go back to the way I was. I'm going to be really strict with myself. And within a few weeks of getting back, I was almost as bad as I'd ever been. And I felt a real sense of despair. And that's when I thought, okay, I need to really understand what's going on here. So I ended up going on this big journey all over the world from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne, not just to cities that begin with the letter M. I don't know why I keep doing that. Um, And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus um, and used my training in the social sciences at Cambridge University to really dig deeply into their, their findings. And what I learned is there's actually scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or make your attention worse. Some of them are in our technology. Actually, they go very widely. A lot of them are things I'd never even thought about. The food we eat, is really negatively affecting our attention and focus. The way our offices work is really harming our attention and focus. The way our kids' schools work is really harming their attention and focus. There's a really broad range of these 12 factors. But crucially, when you understand what these 12 factors are, first of all, you begin to realize it's not a problem with you, right? You're not weak. You're not a failure. There's nothing wrong with you. Your kid is not weak and a failure. There's nothing wrong with your child. There's something wrong with the way we're living. Uh, Your attention did not collapse. The book is called Stolen Focus because your attention has been stolen from you by some really big and powerful forces. But once you understand what those forces are, you can begin to protect yourself and your kids to some degree. And together as a society, we can begin to take those forces on. Uh, you, you talk uh, as part of this exercise to James Williams, a former Google strategist who makes a good point to you talking about how the digital detox, the one that even you are participating in, isn't the solution uh, long term in so many ways is, you know, wearing a gas mask outside isn't a long term solution uh, to air pollution. When we talk yeah. about this, I mean, I, w- I was describing to a friend last night talking about this interview and, and telling him he had to make sure that he checked it out. I, I, I described it essentially as your wake-up call that that really on a way society's on a road to ruin and and i don't actually think that that's me being sensational in the context of your book i mean what's worst case scenario here as you see it well i would say to everyone listening think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of whether it's starting a business being a good parent learning to play the guitar whatever it is that thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when your ability to focus and pay attention deteriorates, as as it is happening to almost all of us, your ability to achieve your goals deteriorates, your ability to solve your problems deteriorates. You feel worse about yourself because you actually are less competent. And when you start to get your attention back in these very focused, scientifically driven ways that I write about in the book, It's like regaining your superpower. So I think what you're asking is a really important question about what's the worst case scenario. Um, The worst case scenario, I think, is if you think about the anxieties, think about what I felt about my godson. The reason I was so worried about his inability to pay attention is because it's very obvious when you see a child who can't pay attention that they're going to really struggle to achieve their goals in life, right? Because depth and focus are at the core of almost all achievement. And that's bad enough when applied to one child. But when it's applied to a wider society, you know, you mentioned Dr. James Williams, a brilliant person who'd worked at the heart of Silicon Valley. I interviewed lots of people who worked at the heart of Silicon Valley. I think it was most striking is how guilty they feel about what they've done. But Dr. Williams has this very interesting way of talking about it. He says there's three kinds of attention. I actually think there's a fourth one, which I know he agrees with. The first layer of attention 
It's the one we think about most when we think about attention problems. It's what's called your spotlight. So anyone listening, unless you're sitting in a completely darkened room, there's loads of stuff around you, right? Like what I'm sitting talking to you, but if I turn my head slightly, I can see out the window, I can see the street, I can see people walking around. I could turn my head to the left and see my books. I could, uh, I've hidden it, but I can look at my phone. Yeah, but I'm screening out all of that and I'm focusing on you. What did Ryan just ask me? So it's called your spotlight because you narrow down to one task. And we can all feel that our spotlight is being disrupted. You know, if I go to the fridge to get a Diet Coke and my friend texts me and I start responding and then I'm standing in the middle of the kitchen, I'm like, why the hell did I come here? Right. And I come back and I don't have my Diet Coke. That's a disruption to your spotlight. But the next, le- but that's the thing we think about most and it's causing lots of problems for us. And we can talk about how to deal with that. And there are definitely ways to stop that happening. The next level up is what he calls your starlight which is not your ability to achieve an immediate goal, like going to the fridge. It's your ability to achieve a long-term goal. I want to set up a business. I want to be a good parent. I want to write a book, whatever it might be. It's called your starlight because when you're lost in the desert, you look to the stars to figure out where you're going. The next level up, and he argues that's being disrupted. I think clearly it is. The next level up is what he calls your daylight. And that's not your ability to achieve a long-term goal. That's your ability to even figure out what your long-term goals are. How do you know what business you want to set up? How do you know what book you want to write? How do you know what it means to be a good parent? Mm. To know those things, you have to have lots of time to think. You have to be able to rest. You have to let your mind wander. You have to sleep well. Um, We're being deprived of those things. The next level up, and I think this goes to the worst case scenario most acutely, is what I would call our stadium lights, which is not just our ability to achieve our own goals, but our ability as a society to achieve collective goals. It is not a coincidence that all over the world, in countries as different as Britain, Brazil, and Burma, we're experiencing enormous crises in listening to each other and in democracy at the same time as this attention crisis. Democracy is a form of attention, right? We can't listen to each other. We spend our time screaming at each other. We are unable to see each other clearly. So I think the worst case scenario is if we don't solve the attention crisis, we're going to suffer, our kids are going to suffer, but actually our democracies are going to come apart at the seams. And you don't need to imagine that because you are in fact seeing it. We were we were talking with a former Canadian diplomat, former you know federal cabinet minister, just before we talked to you, and and this was coming up. I mean, it's a, it's a hot topic in Canada right now: Chinese interference and in Canada's democracy. Uh, you know, allegedly over the past two elections, and, and maybe more than that. And talk of, of Huawei on the on the five G network, and sure. talk of TikTok. I mean, all these things. Your your book sounds alarm after alarm i mean wake up calls on things that we know about i mean when you when you talk about infinite scrolling for example um i was talking to my buddy chris a a friend of mine your book really resonated with him he's who put you on my radar and he's really excited about this this mental health foundation's fundraising breakfast we'll talk about in a minute you're coming to to edmonton to deliver the keynote coming up on march 15th people can check out mentalhealthfoundation.ca for more on that but we were talking about that concept of infinite scrolling and, and, and realizing that back in the day, remember you'd be on Facebook or whatever on your timeline, you'd get to the bottom and then you'd click like show more or next page. It's not the case anymore. It doesn't happen on Instagram. You can scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And we're learning more about the YouTube algorithms and, and how to have our show accessible or in front of more people and, and to do what you can to make that happen. But the more you learn about it, the more you get into the belly of the beast 
I mean, it's really actually quite concerning. You, you, you talk about turning hate into a habit, for example, and how people can be manipulated and, and how people ultimately can be radicalized. I don't want to say unknowingly to absolve people of personal responsibility, but, but in a way, people don't even realize what's happening to them right in front of them. I think you put that really well, Ryan. And I think this is why it's so important for people to understand for all of the 12 factors harming our attention that I write about in Stolen Focus, I think there are two levels at which we've got to respond to them. I think of them as defense and offense. There are loads of things that we can do as individuals immediately to defend ourselves and our children against these forces that are so harming our attention. I'll give you an example of one. I should have brought it over to the camera. Over there, I've got something called a K-safe. It's very simple. I feel a bit like a QVC person now, but it's a plastic safe. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial, push the button, and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I use that for three hours a day to clear my head to write. I will have my, I will sit down and watch a film with my partner unless we both put our phones in the phone gel. We'll have my friends around for dinner unless everyone imprisons their phone. I would recommend anyone with kids at least have an hour a day when everyone imprisons their phone and you have to actually look into each other's eyes, right? So there are dozens of things like that that I write about in the book where we can take personal responsibility, as you say, and begin to protect ourselves. And I'm passionately in favor of these individual changes. I also want to be really honest with people because I do not feel most books about attention are being honest with people. Mm -hmm. These individual changes are hugely important. I beg you to do them. On their own, they're not going to fully solve the problem. Because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, hey, buddy, you should learn to meditate. Then you wouldn't be scratching all the time. You want to go, screw you. I'll learn to meditate. That is very valuable. But you need to stop pouring this itching powder on me. Our attention is not collapsing because you failed to have good habits. Our attention is collapsing because huge invasive forces are designed to hack our attention. Now, that sounded to me kooky and conspiratorial until I spent a lot of time with people who worked in the food industry, people who worked in Silicon Valley going down the list of the 12 causes. Um, you see it in so many of these factors. So, for example, you mentioned social media, infinite scroll. It's very simple. And people who had designed this kept explaining to me and I kept saying to them, it can't be this simple. And they said, how do you think it works? Anyone watching, anyone listening, if, if you open TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram now, they begin to make money out of you immediately in two ways. The first way is really obvious. You see advertising. Okay, no one needs me to explain that. The second way is much more important. Everything you ever do on these apps is scanned and sorted by their artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out what you like and what makes you tick. And they have a huge amount of information on you, including from your so-called private messages. And they are building up a complex, detailed profile of who you are. And they're doing that really for one reason, to figure out what will keep you scrolling, what to feed you to keep you scrolling. Because every time you pick up the app and begin to scroll, they begin to make money. And every time you close the app, that revenue stream disappears. So all of this genius in Silicon Valley, all this AI, all these algorithms is geared towards one thing and one thing only, figuring out how do we get you to open the app as often as possible and scroll as long as possible. That's it. Just like the head of KFC, all he cares about is how often did you go to KFC this week and how big was the bucket you bought? Mm. All they care about is how often, how often did you open the app and how long did you scroll? 
But the crucial thing to understand is, and it took me a long time to absorb this, social media doesn't have to work that way. We can have all the social media we currently have and have it designed not to hack our attention, but to heal our attention. And there's a historical analogy that really helped me to understand this, that you'll remember, I remember, most of your listeners will remember. So when we were kids, I think we're probably about the same age, Ryan, I'm 44. When we were kids, the gasoline that you bought in Canada, in Britain, all over the world, was leaded gasoline, right? And it was discovered by scientists that exposure to lead is really bad for your brain, and in particular, bad for children's ability to focus and pay attention. So what happened was, and of course, if it's in gasoline, it was in the air, everyone was breathing in lead, very high levels of lead. So what happened was a group of ordinary women, mothers, at the time they called themselves housewives, banded together and said, why are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these companies to screw up our kids' brains? And it's important to notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, so let's get rid of gasoline and ban cars, right? Just like none of us are saying, let's get rid of tech and all join the Amish. (laughs) That's not the answer, right? What they said was, let's get rid of the specific kind of gasoline that harms our kids and move to a form of gasoline that doesn't harm them. And people will remember this campaign, right? And how did it go? It followed the classic pattern of all successful political movements. First, they ignored them. Then they laughed at them. Then they fought them. Then they won. As everyone listening knows, there's no more leaded gasoline almost anywhere in the world. As a result, the Centre for Disease Control has calculated the average Canadian child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not banned leaded gasoline, right? Now, to me, that's a great model for thinking about so many of the 12 factors that are harming our attention in stolen focus. Of course, we should take personal responsibility and protect ourselves and our kids as much as we can. But we should also take personal responsibility by banding together with everyone else and dealing with the forces that are doing this. So we've got to regulate big tech to name one of the 12 causes that I write about in in the book. They're not going to do this themselves any more than the lead industry was going to ever go, guys, I think we've made enough money. Let's (laughs) stop screwing up kids' brains. It's not how it works, right? They had to be made to do it. We can make these social media companies do that. And, you know, you mentioned Dr. Williams before, who'd been at the heart of the machine. I'll never forget him saying to me, you know, the axe existed. Human beings had the axe for 1.4 million years before any human being said, guys, shall we put a handle on this thing? The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days. We can put this stuff right if we want to. But the key thing is it requires a shift in psychology. We need to... absolutely make individual changes. And a lot of my book is about that. But we also need to realize, you know, we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table, right? We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can take them back if we want to by taking on the forces that are stealing our attention. But you don't get what you don't fight for. Of course, I mean, peacefully fight for. You don't get what you don't fight for. We've got to make a choice about this. At the moment, the way I think of it is we're in a race. You've got these 12 factors that are harming and invading our attention. And many of them are poised to become more powerful. You know, Paul Graham, one of the biggest investors in Silicon Valley, said that the world is on course to be more addictive in the next 40 years than it was in the last 40. Think about how much more addictive TikTok, which you mentioned is, than Facebook, right? Now imagine the next crack-like iteration of TikTok in the metaverse. That's one side of the race. On the other side of the race, there's got to be a movement of all of us saying, no, no, you don't get to do that to me. You don't get to do that to my brain. 
You don't get to do that to my children. No, that is not a good life. Of course, we choose a life with plenty of technology, but we choose a life where we can think deeply, where we can read books, where our children can play outside. If we want that life, we can get to it. The science is very clear about how to get there. The fight has begun. I went to countries from France to New Zealand that have begun to take on these forces, but we've got to decide to do it. We've got to decide that attention is a thing we value. And if we want it for us and our children, we've got to resolve to take it back. We're talking to Johan Hari, his newest book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. You're also the author of a couple other books, Lost Connections, under, uh, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and Unexpected Solutions. Also, Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. One of your TED Talks, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong. I'm asking you a huge question right now, and I'm curious to see how you'll approach your answer. It may depend on the jurisdiction that we're talking about, but Canada is among the nations experiencing an opioid crisis right now. The different jurisdictions provincially uh, have different solutions or different approaches to it from uh, detox availability, harm reduction centers, including supervised consumption services. As you look at the human condition, as you look at addiction, in particular, the opioid crisis, what are we doing wrong right now? What's the wake-up call that you think millions of people need to hear about? Well, I spent a lot of time in Canada for, for my book about addiction, Chasing the Scream, a lot of time on the downtown east side in Vancouver. It's one of the key parts of the book. And I spent a lot of time in different parts of Canada as well. Um, and this is a very personal uh topic for me one of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to and I, I didn't understand why then because I was too young but as I got older I realized we had addiction in my family and still have addiction in my family and um I think to understand what we're doing wrong when it comes to addiction there's there's different aspects of drug policy but when we think about addiction I think it what transformed my thinking about this was understanding what causes addiction so if you'd asked me, you know, God, how long ago was it now? 12 years ago when I started researching this topic. If you'd said to me, Johan, what causes, let's say heroin addiction, because that's close to me, what causes heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you're an idiot. And I would have said, well, Ryan, the clue's in the name. Mm. Obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction, right? We've been told this story for 100 years that's become totally part of our common sense. It was certainly part of mine. You know, so we think, if we kidnapped the next 20 people to walk past your studio in Edmonton and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month, like a villain in a Saw movie, at the end of that month, they'd all be addicted to heroin for a simple reason, that there's chemical hooks in heroin that after a month of exposure, their bodies would start to desperately physically crave, right? That's why in English, we call it being hooked, right? We think addiction is, a, is synonymous with a huge, tremendous physical hunger for the chemical hooks. It turns out that story isn't wrong, but it's a very small part of what's actually going on with addiction. And the first thing that alerted me to the fact there's something not wrong with, not not right about that story is when a great Canadian, um, Dr. Gabor Mate explained to me, my friend explained to me, in Britain, where I'm from, um, if, if I, if at the end of this interview, I stepped out into the street and I got hit by a truck and I broke my hip, They'd take me to hospital and they give me a, a lot of a drug called diamorphine for the pain, quite likely. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's medically pure heroin. It's much better than the stuff people are scoring on the streets in Edmonton, right? It's it's the good stuff. Um, people in British hospitals are given 
medically pure heroin, often for quite long periods of time. Anyone listening who has a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandma's taken a lot of heroin. Mm -hmm. So if we, what we think about addiction is right, the narrative about addiction, the narrative about the opioid crisis is right. What should be happening to all these people in Britain being given very powerful heroin in hospital? When they leave, they should be trying to score on the streets. This has been studied very carefully. It never happens. And I remember when I learned that and I interviewed the scientists involved, I just thought, well, that can't be true. It, it makes no sense. How could you have someone in a hospital bed being given loads of really powerful heroin? They don't become addicted. And you've got someone shooting up in the alleyway outside who does become addicted. How could that be? And I only began to understand it when I went to interview another great Canadian, extraordinary man named Professor Bruce Alexander in Vancouver, who explained to me the story we have in our heads, that addiction is caused primarily or entirely by exposure to the drug, the chemical hooks in the drug, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Anyone listening, you can try them at home if you're feeling a little bit sadistic. You take a rat, you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks. So there you go. That's our story, right? Uh, the rat tries the drug, needs more and more chemical hooks. Eventually it kills itself. But in the seventies, Professor Alexander was working on the downtown East side and he became curious about these experiments. And he looked at them and said, well, hang on a minute. They put the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing that makes life meaningful for rats. Mm. All it's got is the drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats. They've got loads of friends. They've got loads of cheese. They can have loads of sex. They've got loads of colored balls. Anything a rat likes and finds meaningful in life is there in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drug water. And this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water. They hardly ever use it. None of them use it compulsively. None of them overdose. So you go from very heavy compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life worth living to no compulsive use and overdose when they do have the things that make life worth living. Now, there's lots of human examples of this. They're playing out all around you. You mentioned Canada is having a horrific opioid crisis. Um, it made me realize the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Valuable though that is to many people, the opposite of addiction is connection. The, the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. Once you understand that, you can see why a lot of what we did for a long time, which is punishing people with addiction problems, doesn't. Uh, sometimes we say it doesn't work, which is true, it doesn't work. It's worse than that. It makes the problem worse. If pain is the driver of addiction, inflicting more pain on people makes the problem worse. And um, so to look to solutions, we have to look to the places that have actually built their policies 
around the insights that emerge from Rat Park. I can talk about that a bit if you like, but I'm conscious I've been giving you a very long answer there. No, I mean, we'll listen to you talk all day, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. We're past how, yeah, long, yeah. how long we've asked to speak no, with I'm you. Not but, chill, yeah. I mean, we've, we've got people in our live chat right now, Johan. Most people hear this later on the podcast, but in our live chat, people are saying, this. I, I'm, they're getting tickets right now to the to the March uh, 15th brunch, which is awesome. Uh, the great news is, is that if you're in Edmonton, you can hear Johan Hari in person uh, coming up uh, two weeks from yesterday. It's March 15th. It's the annual fundraising breakfast for the Mental Health Foundation. You can get the details and buy your tickets at mentalhealthfoundation.ca. You can also make a, a donation, become a sponsor to the event, uh, support care for mental health and addictions. You can also join this breakfast virtually. Uh, and they'll actually, this is so cool, the, the cater it. They're shipping breakfast out to people so they can watch from their, their workplaces, their offices, their own homes, which is great. It makes it uh, accessible and available to a whole bunch of people. Um, before you go, I would love to pick your brain on something. Um, I'm at sure. my son's hockey practice this weekend, and he wanted to stick around and watch the big guys play, the U19s. The under-19s had a game after. My son's there watching through the glass, and a couple of the parents of the, 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 the athletes were there, and, and one guy leans over to me, indicated that he's a fan of Real Talk. He's listening to the show. He had heard that you were going to be on the show, and this guy says you have to ask Johan for his take on the four-day work week. Now, some background with this guy. Uh, he owns a big landscaping company, and he said it just wouldn't work for us. He said, we, we make hay when the sun shines. We work seven days a week in the summer. You know, it's just it's not the type of business, uh, you know, for our employees, it wouldn't work to, to go to the four-day work week. But he said as an executive leader and as the leader of that company, he can't help but be intrigued by what he sees as more and more momentum uh, moving toward that type of, a, of an employment structure. Obviously, COVID factors in. Fewer people are working in the workplace, so to speak, returning to the office. Uh, uh, how much have you had to sort of blow up your own uh, preconceived notion of what the work week needs to look like? Or where do you see the trends going? Or what in particular is, is captivating you uh, with regards to what the future of work looks like for the average person? So this I can answer. I'm glad you asked me something that I can talk about because I've done a huge amount of research on this for, for Stolen Focus. So I was interested in researching this because there's a huge amount of evidence that exhaustion devastates attention and a huge amount of evidence that we are exhausted. I don't think anyone listening needs me to give them evidence for that, but if you want me to, believe me, I can. Um, and stress really harms your ability to focus and pay attention. So I was curious about, okay, four-day week seems to reduce that. So I spent a lot of time in New Zealand where the most advanced um, experiment in this had taken place. So there's a guy called Andrew Barnes, who is a really fascinating guy. You should, In fact, you should have him on. Remind me, I'll introduce him. I'm sure he'd love to talk about it. Um, so Andrew is a super successful businessman. In the 80s, British, but he, he lives in New Zealand now. He's been there a long time. But so in the 80s, he worked for the British, the City of London, our equivalent to Wall Street. And so if you picture those pictures, imagine those pictures from the 80s of like men in big shoulder padded suits yelling at each other across the stock market floor going, sell, sell, buy, buy. He was that guy, right? And in that world, you know, you were expected to be at work at 7 a.m. and you were expected to leave like earliest 7 p.m. So half the year, he never even saw the sun, right? He didn't have a good relationship with his wife. It broke down. He barely saw his children. And Andrew was smart enough to be like, this is just not the life for me. And he left and went to New Zealand, Australia and then New Zealand. Years later, in 2017, he read a study, it was just in a business magazine, that really took him aback. He found that actually initially the study was from Canada. 
it found that in Canada, the average worker is in their workplace, it's obviously pre-COVID, is in their workplace eight hours a day, but it's actually only productively working for three hours a day. Wow. And it was like, wow, this is, that's bad, right? And he said, that's a lousy deal for them because their life is passing them by and they're not doing the stuff they want to do. Obviously, it's a lousy deal for the employer. And he said, I think this might be because my workers are exhausted and stressed out. And he suddenly asked himself, well, what if I gave everyone an extra day off, just pay them the same, but they move from a, a five-day week to a four-day week. And in return, they were less stressed, less exhausted, such that it meant that they worked 45 minutes more productively a day, mm. right? He said, if these figures are right, then it would pay for itself. So Andrew owns the company outright. It's a co company called Perpetual Guardian, big company that manages wills and trusts all over us, uh, all over New Zealand. And I remember he, so he has a company call, which is everyone who works for Petro Guardian is on the call. And he tells them, hey, everyone, good news. From now on, you've only got to work four days a week, but I'm going to pay you for five. His head of HR literally fell over. And everyone was like, has Andrew gone mad? Is there some trick here? And the transition took place over, it was over six months. They had a lot of time to plan it. And it was monitored by Auckland Business School. And I spent a lot of time in, I interviewed everyone who worked in their offices in a place called Rotorua. And what was fascinating was, um, they achieved more in four days than they had in five, not per hour. Overall, they achieved more in four hours than they had in five. And this is something they've discovered almost everywhere where they've had four-day week experiments, from Microsoft in Japan to Nissan in Gothenburg in, in uh, Sweden, that they achieved more in four days. I remember at first thinking, that's too good to be true. <laughs> Just, I don't believe it, right? I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical of things I want to believe, right? And then... One person explained it to me really well, a guy called Professor Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's at Stanford University, one of the leading experts in the world on uh, organizational management. And he said, ask any sports fan, right? Ask your hockey dad, right? Do you want your team to walk onto the pitch exhausted, having done 10 hours a day for the last seven days a week, you know, knackered, burned out and stressed? Of course not. You want your team to go onto the pitch well-rested and up for the game. And you know that if they do that, they're way more likely to win. Well, he said, well, if that's true of your sports team, it's true of your colleagues. It's true of your workers, right? Stressed out, burned out, exhausted people do not produce, do not produce work at their best. And look, I have to admit to you, Ryan, this is something I really struggle with because the culture we grow up in, all of us, you know, if I have a day, like today, I'm doing like 10 interviews, right? <sighs> Which is far more than I should do. And I will go to bed and I will be exhausted. And there'll be a little Puritan bit of me that will go, good job, Johan. You, you, you've worked so hard today that you're completely exhausted. Yeah. Even though I know and have learned all this evidence, actually, that's not a very, I would do much better interviews if I did five interviews and not 10. And I'll be more, I would be much more productive tomorrow because I wouldn't be burned out. Um, so we've got to really deeply challenge our concept of productivity because the, the ways we work are ruining our attention. And if your attention is ruined, your work is going to be much worse than it otherwise would be. So the evidence of from four-day weeks, we've now got a huge amount of evidence from four-day weeks. Um, and it's been pretty rigorously studied. So I don't know enough about landscaping. To I can understand there's obviously seasonal variations. It might be like, you know, a farmer's got to get the crop in a certain time and you can't say to the crop, Sorry, I'll be, I'm going to do you four days and I'll come back. Right. I understand that. There's, of course, some businesses where it's not applicable. But I would say 
the principles where uh, the less exhausted your workers are, the less stressed your workers are, the more hour by hour their work will improve. Now, I should also say, by the way, I've talked about this as a boss delivering it. And look, Andrew is a great, Andrew Barnes is a wonderful man. Most people will not be so lucky that their boss will hand this down. Most of us will be in a position where if we want that and we should want that. And by the way, even if it didn't make us more economically productive, I would be in favor of a four day week because life is not all about work. But if we want that, most people, I think, you know, should form labor unions and fight for it. And I think we'll, we'll get it if we fight for it. Just like the reason we have the weekend is because people before us, um, Canada was one of the first countries after Australia to do this. Uh, workers before us fought for the weekend. People used to work seven days a week and then they got it down to six and they got it down to five. And I think this is a necessary civilizing next step and it would definitely boost our attention and focus. You're speaking truth, my man, and I'm looking oh. forward. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to two weeks uh, coming up, March fifteenth. That's uh, Wednesday, two Wednesdays from now. The annual fundraising breakfast in support of the Mental Health Foundation. It's uh, proudly presented by our friends at Altitude Investments, and I know that everybody's really excited uh, to see and hear from you, Johan. People can get their tickets, learn more, to either attend in person in Alberta's capital city of Edmonton or attend virtually at MentalHealthFoundation.ca. You can learn uh, learn more about Johan's books. His TED Talks and, of course, all of his other involvements by checking out johanharry.com. The new book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. Can't thank you enough. Uh, we took you oh. into overtime and we really appreciate it. Oh, I really enjoyed your questions. Cheers, Ryan. Thanks, Johan. I hope to see you when I'm in town. Yeah, you Thanks. got it. Looking forward to it. Wow. We didn't even get into like a million other things that he writes about. That four-day work week is a very intriguing thing. I didn't hear any of the interview. I was on my phone. Yeah, yeah. What sorry, you were, you were scrolling on. You were on Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> you were still in the jungle room at Graceland. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Did it resonate with you? The, of course. Speaking a lot of truth to power, I, I, I don't think there's anything he said that I didn't, that I didn't, that I disagreed with. But yeah, it's just it's sad. I was scrolling. Here we go. <laughs> We're asking ourselves uncomfortable questions over the past couple of weeks. We're asking our, our episode, do you drink too much? Yeah. Are you addicted to your phone? <laughs> uh, two things, now that you bring up the drinks. But one, I was scrolling the other day and I saw a friend, a, 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 you know, someone I don't hang out with regularly, but someone I known for many years said, you know, uh, supervised consumption sites don't work. Okay. And I remember thinking in this. I remember thinking at that time, like, if nothing else, they put someone in touch with another human being. Yeah. They're not doing drugs in an alley. They're not doing it at home in in a dark room. They're not, you know what I mean? Like, if nothing else, supervised consumption sites give you a connection to someone. That's huge. Who's going to, you know, just interact with you. And as he was talking about it, about the rat, the rat park project and Wasn't all that, that fascinating? stuff. fascinating? It's so right. Like it's it's one step. Yeah, people think, oh, it's a, it's a place to do drugs. It's just a step closer to getting out of that world, right? Mm -hmm. And then the second thing he was talking about, as he's talking about it, and and like you said, a drink. It's so funny that we do that. Like you and me, when we have a hard day here. Oh, I need a drink. Like it's something we just say, right? Uh. And it's like maybe we don't. Maybe we just need to like have a conversation. Maybe yeah. we need to like. 
invite some people into the studio and, and chat with them. I'm not saying you can never have a drink, but you know what I mean. It's like it's all it's it's it's, it's about if we have more connection, having healthy relationships with things. Yeah, and even the other day, I was at home, I was stressed, and I was like, oh, I need a beer, and I just grab a beer and. You know, you chug it in like three seconds. <laughs> Not an alcoholic. I didn't have like six, but you know, I just needed a drink. I was thirsty. And then as he's talking, I'm like, we do that all the time where we just reach for that instead of like yeah. calling someone or, or, you know or what I mean? practicing yoga or doing something, you but know, that healthier. Con- that connection though. It's yeah. really, it's really what life is all what about. You say the opposite of addiction is connection. Yeah. It really is what life is all about. Connecting Sharp with people. Guy. And then the more you connect with people. The more your focus is on, you know, those that serotonin you're getting from just being connected with someone, you don't think about the booze, you yeah. don't think about the smokes, you don't think about overeating, you don't think about all those other things. So, I love uh, and I love what you bring to the table every day. We just like hash these things out. This is real life, and I and I know I guarantee we're going to get emails from people with with whom Johan's message has been resonating. He talk was incredible. at Ryan So good, we could yeah. talk to him for ten hours. That's the way I was feeling. That conversation was presented uh, by our friends at Local Environmental Services, and of course they're stepping up on the sponsors front of that Mental Health Foundation breakfast that's bringing Johan Hari across the pond to Edmonton in a couple of weeks. Uh, Local Environmental Services understands what it means to be a good corporate citizen what it means to be part of a community if you want to learn more about who they are and what they're all about you can check them out online at localenvironmental.ca there's a great video feature there who is local you can meet their leadership team learn more about their core values and come to an understanding about how they're about so much more than just garbage and recycling localenvironmental.ca they present trash talk another edition coming up tomorrow Big shoes to fill. Last week's trash talk. Last Friday's trash talk was, was one. For the, that was a banger. That was one for the ages. Their friends at Friesen Brothers are focusing on unique food experiences, fresh food, and, and solutions for their customers. Uh, their new Family Essentials offers easy family meal solutions with a great price per serving. Every month, they're introducing new family meal solutions using Family Essentials products. Easy, interesting recipes, new and old favorites. Most importantly, they can all be made using the products from the Family Essentials Flyer. Uh, There's even new recipe videos that you can check out to see how easy they are. Just go to Friesen.com. That's F-R-E-S-O-N. Check out their Family Essentials Flyer and see all the recipes under the What's for Dinner link. It's a great resource. Shout out to everybody that took 15% off their groceries yesterday, the first of the month. At Apex Automation, you can see them online, apexautomation.ca. They are hiring. That's not like this week or, or, or until the end of next week. They're always hiring because this company is growing like you wouldn't believe. Bringing in the best automation professionals across the country and around the world. You can learn more about what they're doing, providing intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry, giving people back their time in, in farming, in energy, in brewing. They are Canada's experts at Apex Automation. If you're looking for a new career, maybe you're a professional engineer looking to shake things up, a new opportunity, check out apexautomation.ca. We're talking a lot about families, it seems, today. We're talking a lot about spending time together. What about keeping the money in the bank so you can maybe take the family on a staycation or maybe even head out of town. That all starts today with a visit to parkpower.ca. Chances are, if you're not doing business with Park Power, you're paying too much for electricity, natural gas, and internet. I don't know how else to put it. 
It takes two minutes to compare rates, what you're paying now versus what you could be paying with Park Power, and it takes five minutes to bring your business over there. Make sure when you do sign up at Park Power, bundle those services, electricity, natural gas, and internet, using the promo code REALTALK23. You can save up to $150 off your first bill. REALTALK23, the promo code at parkpower.ca. We're talking a lot about landscaping companies. If it's lighting a fire under you, if it's reminding you that soon spring and then summer will be here, you want to bring your outdoor space to life, you have visions of maybe getting the family together, maybe some of your friends around a campfire circle, or maybe they're all checking out, ooing and awing over your new water feature. Maybe you're serving pizza out of your brand new outdoor kitchen with that pizza oven you've always dreamed of. You can trust your vision to the team at Eden Landscaping, a custom builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. They have yet to encounter a construction-related challenge that they can't meet. They're problem solvers at Eden Landscaping. You can find all the evidence under their beautiful, beautiful case studies, the featured projects at landscapeedmonton.ca. Coming up on tomorrow's show, looking forward to a conversation with a war journalist who has spent the last number of months telling stories in conflict zones. But while she was over there, while she was in Ukraine, she was recognized by the Canadian Association of Journalists for her climate reporting. She's a legendary storyteller, and Sarah Lorniak will be checking in from London, England. We hope you'll join us for that. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, Executive Producer Josh Dunford, Technical Producer John Hicks, General Manager Katie Cook Chivers, Account Coordinator Lawrence Durlego, Human Resources Lena Shepard, Website Design Mike Johnston, VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com.